Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And it is Sunday, May 22nd, 2022. What Did we just turn into NPR? It's Sunday, May 22nd, 2002. And we're going to talk some playoff basketball. Um, Cody, Heat Celtics. Miami is now up 2-1 in the Eastern Conference Finals. As we record this Sunday morning, the Warriors are up 2 nothing. What's on your mind? Well, first of all, when you started with the date, my first reaction was like, really? It's not like April 8th? I mean, May 8th? Like, what What happened? So thank you for, for setting me to where we actually are in time and space. Uh, but yeah. That's what I'm here for. I'm basically Doctor Strange. That, I, I think that was the entire plot of that movie was figuring out what time it was. I'm pretty I sure. Haven't see, I haven't seen the movie. I just know and whenever Doctor Strange is involved, that time is involved. And I do wonder if Doctor Strange and Christopher Nolan were to come together in a cinematic universe, what would happen to the space-time continuum? Let's get to basketball. Well, speak, speaking of strange, <laughs> I'm not quite understanding this series yet, Ben. Uh, there's a lot of things that like I think are really interesting to look at, but the Heat are up 2-1, and I'm pretty sure... If the Heat won the rest of the series, like if the Heat won the series 4-1, I would still come back on this podcast and say, you know what? I think the Boston Celtics are probably going to take this one. I still believe in the Boston Celtics in this series. Is that is that kind of what you're feeling right now or no? Um, I completely understand why you feel that way. I'm not there yet with Miami winning the first game after the Celtics came off the seven-game war, an absolute war against the Milwaukee Bucks. I was not stunned by that. And then looking at the the tape and the matchups in that first game, some of those injuries, you know, the Celtics without Horford and Smart, Boston coming back and smashing them in the second game. I was coming into these two games in Boston thinking, can Miami get another one? I think they can. We'll figure out how. you got to play well. And, you know, Eric Spolstra is so good within series at making adjustments like this. Although I didn't even think he made huge adjustments. It's just getting Lowry back and some stuff for Bam, playing well. Boston didn't play well. We'll talk about it more in a little bit. But I'm not quite there yet. I will be there if the Heat are, like, up 10 in the third quarter in Game 4. Or, conversely, if they drop game four and it's 2-2 and they go back to Miami and they have a monster first half or something like that in Miami, then I'll be where you are, where I'm like, wow, I I did not think that Miami could get to the brink here. And I would still kind of have that headspace, I think, of like, well, it's 3-2, but yeah, the Celtics still probably have this. I'm not there yet, but I think if Miami shows me a little bit more, they're going to push me over the edge. And I want to talk about, let's talk about the Heat a little bit, because Kyle Lowry was back in yesterday's game. And I don't know about you, but I felt like his presence was really tangible immediately, both on offense and defense. And and I want to stick on offense for a second. The main thing that I saw was just how he was pushing the pace, like literally himself taking early pull-up threes. I think he hit maybe like the fifth field goal of the game. He was kicking it ahead. I think Jimmy Butler got a layup out of it. He was establishing uh, Bam in post position right away too. And I think getting into those sets a lot quicker and not letting Boston kind of set up what they want to do defensively. I know Rob Will was out, but still not letting them set up. Really, that really stood out to me. And I'm like, I like this. The Heat are kind of of trying to scramble this game a little bit. And Kyle Lowry is so good at doing that. Yeah, I I agree with you completely about the pace. I think... An interesting question to me is what qualifies as a major or minor adjustment these days? Because it's it's an arbitrary line, and sometimes when I 
do a scout or I'm all over a series, um, I feel like, wow, that's a major adjustment. And then other times, like in game three, I feel like it's minor stuff. Lowry coming back is a big deal, but schematically, I don't know how much it changes. Um, getting Bam out of bio into open space and early possessions felt like a deliberate effort on Miami's part. But is that a huge thing if Bam doesn't, uh, you know, make a handful of great plays, make his like first two jumpers against contested coverage or something and just all around have a monster game? I don't know. I'm just going to put a pin in that and throw it out there because it's something I've been thinking about. But yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, it almost feels like a behind-the-scenes adjustment kind of thing, because I feel like part of the discourse from the first couple of games was that we really want to see Bam Adebayo assert himself a little bit more on offense. He seems a little tentative. It's like there's something holding him back from really attacking. In this game, there was like a very clear, I am going to shoot a lot more. I'm going to take Horford off the bounce. I'm going to literally bring the ball up myself a lot more, and I'm going to take maybe some ill-advised looking mid-range shots and I'm still going to bury them because they're a good shot for me at times, right? And I think I saw somebody, I, I forgot where I saw us, but I'm pretty sure this was Bam Adebayo's uh, career high in field goal attempts in a game. Oh, wow. Like across regular season and playoffs. So like from what we saw earlier in those first couple of games, like this was a very clear, I'm sure Spolster was in his ear. I don't know who else was in his ear being like, Bam, you need to come out and just make a difference right away. You need to push it a little bit more, maybe get yourself out of the comfort zone. Maybe that's the kind of adjustment that was happening, the adjustment that you don't see on the court and can't specifically point towards. Right, exactly. That's exactly what I'm getting to. And then that could lead to something that you may consider a more significant adjustment down the road, which is what's so fun about these playoff series, where maybe in game four, Boston changes how they defend them. Probably won't be a different defender given the Celtics personnel, but... For basically the entire first half, um, maybe just still we could say the entire series, they haven't given him any extra defensive attention. They said, Al Horford, if you're on him in space, Marcus Smart, if you're on him in space, we're not really going to load up much to Bam. We're not going to double. I think sometimes the Celtics have done that to their own detriment in terms of if you look at some of the clips, if if you like pause the video you're like, I don't know if they need to be hugged up to Gabe Vincent in the corner on this potential handoff action like he's Steph Curry. But if Bam continues to assert himself like that and create a physical advantage, then I think it's something that you will you will see the Celtics basically have to adjust. And that gives Miami that extra offensive juice that we were looking for when we were previewing the series and have talked about it before. I will say there was a weird... Um, there was a weird question on the Chiron after the game on NBA TV that people have been passing around social media, which after Miami won, it said, did, did Miami win this game or did Boston lose this game? Um, very, very strange question, I think, to typically pose after a game. But the spirit of the question, if you want to be earnest about it, is when you watch the game or when you study the film, do you see the Heat making changes or making plays that sort of put them over the top and changed what we saw from game two? Or is it Boston? And I think in this case, it's actually a little of both, which is probably why that question was generated. So right out of the gate in the opening quarter, if you go back to that Kyle Lowry play, it was a make. It was this, I think it was the Celtics' first make. Jalen Brown hits a fadeaway across the paint, uh, the foul line area in the paint, to make it 5-2. And Lowry gets the ball out of the net 
pushes it ahead to Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler gets a layup out of that. There might have been an and one. I can't even remember. Yeah, it was. But it was an and one, right? Yep. But this is the kind of thing when you go back and watch the play, you realize Marcus Smart, who is Butler's assignment, the Celtics have had Smart on Butler as the primary, he immediately recognizes the sort of bending of the geometry of the court because of where Jalen Brown took the jumper and where Lowry and Butler are situated and so on and so forth. I think Smart had floated into the corner um, to try to get uh, a kickout pass, and so he was buried low on the play. He immediately starts pointing to Jalen Brown and says, Butler is your guy. I'm going to take the ball with Lowry. And he's actually pointing repeatedly as Lowry passes, and Brown just completely is asleep and doesn't hear it. He's running to the other side of the court to go match up with someone. So it's things like that where Lowry makes a difference because he presents this weapon, this guy who will make that hit ahead pass, who will immediately say, get the ball out of the basket. Let's push pace. But it's also, to me, a lot of the game was looking at that and saying like, oh, well, the Celtics also complied by not not doing what they normally do. Rob Williams not being out there felt like a big difference, especially with Bam, because Tice is the help defender who's going to come over, who's going to come off a weak offensive player. And there were a couple possessions in the first quarter where Tice didn't rotate. He obviously doesn't have the shot blocking chops. It's just a slightly different animal. So I think that's why we're feeling like I don't, I still kind of expect the Celtics to have an edge. Miami's doing Miami things. I don't have a feel for it. That's kind of where I'm at. So I think this is a really interesting push-pull, and even specifically on that play, because you can have a play where Jalen Brown isn't making the rotation that Smart is calling for, and nothing comes of it, right? They don't take exactly. advantage. Yep. But exactly. when there's a mistake... Like, the other team has to do something about it, and that's what Kyle Lowry is a master at, both on offense and defense. And I think that's what makes this kind of conversation more difficult, because there are a lot of plays, like Jimmy Butler is just God-mode passing lane defense this series, just everywhere. If it's an errant pass and he's anywhere in there and you telegraph it for even a second, he is exploding in there, and he is getting that steal, right? And so that gets into your head a little bit. But then do you read too much into that, where you have... Like, there were plenty of plays, I thought, in this last game. There were plenty of plays yesterday where I just thought the Boston Celtics, like, threw a pass to the Heat. Like, they threw it, and I'm like, that that wasn't even good defense. That was just a bad pass. Like, a lot. Like, when Marcus Smart came back from his injury in the second half, like, he had a couple of passes, and I'm like, should I read this as an injury thing? Is he in his head? Like, what's going on with these passes? Are they in their head because they're afraid of Miami's rotations right now? And so, I think that's the push and pull of this is, yes, Miami's rotations are crisp. Jimmy Butler is everywhere. Bam's been playing tremendous paint and perimeter defense, too. But, like, is that the reason that the Celtics just also had a bad passing game. So I think that's that's an interesting question that's kind of unanswerable completely. Yeah, yeah. But I think you're describing the heart of it for me where the Heat played a really good game. Um, their decision-making, their shot-making, both Bam and I thought Max Struess had the shot-making dialed in. I don't know how many jumpers he ended up hitting, but it felt like every time there was like a play, Max Struess came out of nowhere. He had a huge one in the fourth quarter when the game was really tight. 
And there were moments where the Celtics, I mean, I think Smart's first pass of the game that was critical, um, he was double teamed and then kind of like threw this hook pass over his shoulder expecting a cutter. But even if there was a cutter, he threw it to three Miami defenders that were just standing there. So the Heat had some bonkers number of steals, like 19 steals. And I do want to talk more about their help defense and their pressure as it pertains to the passing game, specifically with Tatum, although we can apply it to Brown a little bit. But I think one area that is entirely Miami, and I don't know if it's a focus of Eric Spolstra or just a byproduct of the personnel on the court, but the Celtics don't have like elite ball handling as part of their paint penetration. Jalen Brown... Um, was someone who really struggled to dribble when he came into the NBA. And he's come a lot. The fact that he gets criticized is funny to me because he's he's made enormous strides on his handle. Uh, I can relate to him as a small-handed person. Um, it's hard to, you know, grip the ball sometimes when you have small hands like that in traffic. And also, that's not his game. You know, he's still more a little bit off-ball, get some space, attack downhill. He was phenomenal in Game 3, especially getting to that right hand and just using that burst and athleticism to get by people and finish. But he and Tatum, gap dribbling into traffic the number of times that they were ripped. And this goes back to game one when we talked about that huge third quarter run that the Heat had and all the steals and pick sixes that they got in that game. Uh, That, to me, felt like a rare time in a huge playoff series where you're like in the conference finals and you go, boy, a major matchup factor in this game is one team's star players can't dribble too good uh, and the other team has like... uh, hands of it's it's like a lot of Gary Payton's out there or something the hands on those guys are unbelievable so that one to me is a matchup specific thing and I don't know how deliberate it is but I thought it was a huge factor in the game another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help for your financial to-dos Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I like the shout out to Brown's development with dribbling. Because when I think about the gold standard for dribbling development, like Paul George comes to mind. Like this is a guy that like really yeah. didn't have a handle when he came in. And now he's he's one of the most fluid handlers and just like using his body in space. And Brown's improved, but he's not Paul George level, right? And I think where his improvement was, and this was a big part of yesterday, is Brown is really tremendous at straight line drives, especially off the secondary tertiary attackers. Like any of you that have played basketball, you're out there in, in pickup or whatever level you're playing. When you get the ball on offense when the defense is put in rotation you know how to see how the defender is coming at you so you can attack them in space so it's like all right you're going to be shifting this direction so i'm going to go this direction i'm going to beat uh, blow by you this way jalen brown is really good at that because he's really explosive like he can put the ball on the court and get to the basket really quickly but like you said when it's a gap dribble when it's getting into the teeth of the, the defense and then the defense comes over and walls off the rim and walls off like the clear options that optionality is where brown is kind of like uh-oh, I need to find like a uh, easier kickout pass to make and maybe it comes up with an ill-advised shot or an ill-advised pass or gets stripped or something like that. So that I think is what Miami's done a great job of is walling off the option A and then option B, C, D is what Brown struggles with. 
Yeah, and of course, uh, defense and offense are connected. So you turn you turn the Celtics over, you get them out in transition, you get Lowry pushing the pace. Jimmy Butler did not play in the second half, so credit to the Heat for holding on and and you know preserving that cushion they built in the first half where they're up by like 26 points, I believe. But Jimmy Butler's phenomenal at those exchange fast break situations, getting down court, sealing people off. I I think he might be, if he's not the best player in the league at that, he's certainly one of the best players at sealing while running down court on a pass. Like he, he slows his body up just a little bit, uses that trail arm and shoulder just a little bit, almost like a, a wide receiver waiting for the pass to come over the top. And that that deceleration um, creates that extra space for the catch. And then he's so big, he can go up. So all those things help Miami. Cody, I also want to know, where are you playing pickup where, where defenses are in complex rotations uh, and you're waiting for the swing to attack an X out or something. This is this is some high level pickup you're playing, my friend. Man, Ben, defense defense is my bag. Like when I'm out there, I'm like, can my teammate shoot already so we can get back and play defense? Like I wanna I wanna start court mapping and doing this kind of thing. So maybe it's just in my mind that this kind of thing is happening. But as somebody that struggles with the Jalen Brown uh option B, option C off the attack. Like I need that second side rotation because that's the only time where I'm like, yes, I can actually make it to the basket from the perimeter here. I, I now have a vision of Cody in pickup, like running back after a main bucket and yelling, box, box and one. I got the ball. <laughs> um, I want to talk about Tatum's passing because another thing that we've touched on, um, it's been mentioned in a couple videos on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel, and he's really improved in this area. His overall decision making, the tempo, the pace, playing at his speed, and then making certain early passes. And this goes back to Kevin Durant against the Celtics and what the Celtics were doing to him. Heck, it even goes back for me, um, just in consecutive series, to the to the 2021 finals, where Giannis when the Suns would cheat up on him a little bit in transition, they would try to build a wall a little bit tighter off the edge in transition. He was fantastic on a couple key plays, whipping the ball into the quarter early. So basically what we're talking about here is you're the star player. The defense gaps harder. They, they, They shrink the court. They send more help. They sit in your driving lane. The Heat in particular love to come off the corner and get all the way up to the elbow and kind of like dare you to make that pass because we're long, we're quick, we're waiting for it. We sit around and practice and do shell drills and yell at each other waiting to get steals. <laughs> and I thought Tatum has been inconsistent in this regard. And in, in game three, I thought he really struggled. And right out of the gate, again, you go back and you watch that first quarter where Miami started to create this enormous advantage. He struggled on a couple possessions, driving it into the teeth, didn't get stripped, but it's like, you got a guy on the near side corner you can think about. You also have a skip pass that you can swing to the other side that would really crush the defense. But you took that extra dribble and then shot it instead. That leads to a difficult shot. That leads to a rebound. That leads to a run out. That kind of stuff has a compounding effect throughout the game. And of course, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a good game at all for Tatum overall. But I think this passing element and the way Miami likes to defend the passing lanes is a key thing going forward. Yeah, 
And there, there's a specific play with Lowry, and I kind of want to tie this in, too, with, with the defensive flexibility and importance of Lowry. But there's this play, I think it's about 847 in the first, where Tatum, I, I don't remember exactly what action happened to get him downhill, but he gets downhill, and it looks like he's a pretty pretty clear lane to the basket, and I think in previous games it would have been a layup, but as he's driving, Kyle Lowry, of course we talked about Chris Paul rim protection last last podcast where he strips people down there, Kyle Lowry rim protection is like Marcus Smart rim protection where they're just going to throw their body between you and the rim and they're going to get a charge, so Lowry's weak side, he helps off completely, gets in front of the charge circle and he stations himself and Tatum sees this, Tatum's like crap. I don't want to turn over here. So I don't really have a good option. So I'm going to try and kick it to the corner. Guess who's lurking over there? Jimmy Butler. Probably lurking. Jimmy Butler. Jimmy yeah. Butler. Jimmy Butler he's, is he's a lurker. He's yeah. such a good lurker. And so, again, here's the heat on a string. Here's Kyle Lowry using his body as rim protection. And here's all of them knowing that if you put this uh, barrier in front of Jason Tatum in this specific play, this is the pass he's going to make. They're almost baiting him into making this sort of cross-court pass. Instead of him manipulating the defense, this is a good, good uh, situation where the defense is dictating what the offensive player is doing. We've been talking about this game for 15 minutes and somehow haven't mentioned that um, Marcus Smart is made of adamantium, (laughs) Cody. Um, Or maybe it's the pre-adamantium Wolverine because what he did to his ankle in that, what was it, like the third quarter, uh, I had an injury very, very similar to that. And I was out like four to five weeks and I actually chipped a piece of the bone off my ankle my junior year of high school with a play like that where you get that. Uh, basically jump as high as you can, fall down, and you roll it so bad that you kind of end up like landing on the side of your your ankle bone, your heel. Gross. Um, Smart apparently just like went in the back and was like, give me, give me like a five-minute massage from Gene Gray, and I'll be back out on the court in no time. Um, I, actually, I actually thought he couldn't move very well. And I didn't love his minutes the rest of the game. And the same thing with Tatum. When Tatum came back, whatever shoulder, neck, kind of upper uh, extremity thing he had there, I, I didn't think he was great when he came back either. So it was a wild game three. Um, yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say, it was just, it, it was weird. Like, there were two injuries that when I saw them, like, my first reaction was like, they're done. Like, this is it. Like, Tatum's shoulder was a limp. Like, his arm was just, like, limp for a second. I'm like, what, what's happening right here? And that's smart, the replay. Oh, that was gross. And then Lowry, like, it, I don't think it was intentional, but he, like, rolled on it. Oh, my God. But then he came back fun. in. He came back in, Ben. Marcus Smart came back in, and he gets the ball in the corner. And I turn to my wife, and I'm like... He makes this three. That crowd's going crazy. And I don't, we can have any kind of shot quality conversation ever. There was 100% chance the shot was going in. Marcus Smart was not missing that three. He pump fakes, sidesteps, shoots the three. Like, this is it. It's in. In. Crowd goes wild. Like, that was, I, I don't even care. You were probably right about the, the movement and all of that stuff, but that was awesome. 100% shot quality. We'll, we'll have to, we'll have to uh, table the, the shot quality conversation uh, for later in the playoffs. But, there's an interesting stat that's been floating around about this series, which is Miami has won two games and they've only won two quarters. The other quarters they've either lost or have been tied. And of course, those two quarters, the third quarter of game one that we talked about last time, the first quarter of game three, they won them by like 20, 20 something points or whatever. So um, it's, a little, it's a little silly to me, Cody, to say that they've only won two quarters as if it's a kind of problem because I think it's just a 
sort of statistical oddity, if you will, that all of these pick sixes or shots or whatever happen on the other side of the arbitrary buzzer instead of like one extra three in the second quarter that would also allow them to win the second quarter. Struess makes that one in the first quarter as well or or the other night in the first game you know instead of getting a steal in the fourth they get that steal in the third get the pick six so the reason i think of this is there's a lot of discussion around variance and around um blowouts and what's going on with the scores i turn the game on it's a 30 point lead in the first half i'm watching mavs suns game seven it's 76 to 34 like like what is happening what's going on yeah, do you, do you have any information, Ben? Are we just going to have to like conjecture about our opinions on it and rely on our memory, or do you do you happen to have some kind of information about blowouts? Oh no, I have the data. I just was wondering if you do you think this is just three point shooting? Do you do you have any other? You're 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 very good at coming up with these philosophical sort of ideas. I was wondering if you had any other explanation besides the fact that teams are taking you know forty to fifty threes at the end of these key sequences where it's like, we're in a playoff series, we want to scout the key players. At the end of their actions, we don't want them getting layups and free throws. And if we make them work as a defense and the ball goes in rotation, as we're as we're in rotation as a defense, that might end up with a role player taking a three. And as we've talked about with the 27 in a row Houston Rockets way back in 2018, like sometimes those shots aren't what they appear and maybe it's easier for certain role players to miss 10 in a row. On the flip side, if your team's worrying and things are going well and your stars are playing well and you're getting your shots, now all of a sudden you make it easier for your role players. Maybe they can have a 9 for 11. Three, like, what were the Mavs in Game 2 on Friday night in the first? They had 14 threes in the first half, I want to say. They could not miss. And they were just on fire at one point. They were like 9 of 11 from downtown. But that's one explanation. I don't, maybe that's it. I, I legitimately don't know, Ben. This is a really odd thing to me because, like, you could be like, oh, it's a, it has to do with com- – completely has to do with three-point shooting. But, like, the Suns don't take a lot of threes, like a team that doesn't rely on that sort of thing. So I I legitimately don't know. I thought about this a little bit, but I, I hate to disappoint. I don't have a great answer right now. Okay, so let's reveal the data. Um, I did not have time in the last few days to run – magical sort of MIT level comprehensive analysis on this. But I think the basic data gets us to a place where we go, oh, our our minds are our mind is not playing tricks on us. That's what we're looking for. So if you look at the average margin of victory in the NBA playoffs this season, it is over 13 points per game. That's on the high side. Uh, if you go back to like 2014, 2010, 2006 playoffs, it was closer to like 11 points per game, sometimes 12. Uh, if you go back 20 years uh, as more tightly contested playoff run, the 2002 playoffs, average margin of victory was nine points per game. As you go forward in time, uh, this season has a very high standard deviation, the variance. So one game's four, one game's a 34-point game. And then if you just look at pure blowouts, the number of pure blowouts, um, like let's say games that were decided by 20 points or more, in 2002, 10% of the playoff games were decided by at least 20 points. In 2014, 16% of the playoff games were decided by at least 20 points. In 2018, 20% of the playoff games were decided by at least 20 points. This season, 
28%, Cody, more than one in four playoff games has ended with a margin of victory greater than 20 points. It's a lot. That's over a quarter of the games have been over a 20-point loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here, here's my first thought. I'm looking at this data. Is there some way that you could adjust this for the offensive ratings of the teams? Because I'm thinking back to like like the 2002 range, right? 2002, 2003, 2004. And you get one of the series of, say, I don't know, the Pacers versus the Pistons. And you have the very famous game. That's I don't even remember what the final score was. Like 67-72. Like this is a legitimate post-21st century NBA playoff game that was like in the 70s and 60s. If that was a 20-point loss, it would look like a college game. It would be like 65 to 45. Like, that's just not going to happen. So is there some way that you can adjust? Because there's no way that, like, the Ben Wallace, Chauncey Bill Pistons are going to drop 134 in a game. Like, that just wasn't going to happen. So what what could you do with this data that could maybe paint, like, can you paint it in a different way? Or do you think that this is actually as dramatic as it seems? Well, I think what you're saying is part of the story. I, you could adjust for that. And it might sound less dramatic because maybe in that sense, when you convert from environment to environment or from year to year, the value of a point, it was harder to score in the 2004 playoff. What, what was the average score of that series in the 2004 playoffs? I think it was like 75 to 72 or something like that. This is the 2004 Eastern Conference Finals between the Pistons and the Pacers. If you're complaining about the rules or the officiating or the skill or back in my day, just remember 18 years ago, Eastern Conference Finals, the average score, Detroit 75, Indiana 73, and the the game that Cody is thinking of, game six, the game that the Pistons won to go to the NBA Finals was 69 to 65. It was a shootout, not at halftime. That was the final score of the game, 69 to 65. So on one hand, yeah, I think if you made some adjustments for that, it wouldn't look quite as stark, but that's also the point. The point is, is that there's more explosiveness on offense. The pace is up, so you're going to have more possessions that can create more variability, more swings in the score. One team's up 20, and then they end up by losing by, by 20. We've seen that a lot, right? Like, we can talk a little bit about Warriors-Mavs game too, but 20 years ago, I don't think you turned that game on when Dallas had a 19-point lead and was on fire and went, I think Golden State's going to come back and win this game. It was more like, wow, this would be a really unlikely event if Golden State could find a way to come back and win this game. I don't know about you, everyone I've talked to thought, man, the Warriors, Dallas better be careful in this third quarter because the Warriors are gearing up to do some Warriors stuff and they end up winning the game. They end up catching them like in the third or early fourth and passing them and winning the game um, by by six. And I think they had a 10-point lead at one point down the stretch. So we see these swings of like 20, 30, 40 points within a game. And of course, it's connected to more possessions and pace and more efficiency where the offensive rating in that Pistons-Pacers series. Not 91 for the Pistons, 88 for the Pacers, and today we have offensive rating, you know, 115s, 120s, things like that. 
yeah, I'm looking at that game right now. The pace of that game was 80, 80 possessions. Offensive ratings, 81 and 86. So you want to talk about just slow-paced. Um, Indiana had the higher effective field goal percentage of 41 and Detroit with 35. <laughs> Like this is that's as much of a slog as you can possibly get. Um, but yeah, when, when you talk about, say, getting these early leads and then thinking like, uh oh, this other team has to worry about it. I think that's where the conversation about shot quality comes in. And now that that seems to be like the topic du jour right now on Twitter is I feel like every game there's there's a tweet about shot quality. And it's like, well, actually, this team probably should have won based on the shot quality. And then everyone loses their minds. Um, but I kind of understand that, like when we go back to the most recent Mavericks Warriors game like at one point what the the Mavericks were up 26 to 8 26 to 9 and I almost I almost sent a message to the thinking basketball intelligentsia being like well the Warriors have them right where they wanted and I was like kind of serious like from what I was seeing in that quarter like the Warriors were missing what I consider to be really good open threes Jalen Brunson hit like a step back three Luca hit a couple of really tough shots and I'm like this is not sustainable this isn't gonna keep this isn't gonna hold and then lo and behold Warriors come back and win so I guess that's a bigger discussion about shot quality and game variance. Are you seeing like that sort of uh, an impact or that should be a conversation that we should be having on the day-to-day games during these playoffs? Um, do you mean, do you mean within a specific game, instead of saying this team's up by 20 at halftime at halftime, we should check in and say, who's getting better shots. Are they sustainable? Um, because even if you think, is that what you're asking? Yeah, like should we should we have bigger yeah. discussions about the the process of the how they are getting the shots and what kinds of shots they are getting instead of just looking at the raw numbers? I, that's what my tattoo on my arm okay. says. Yeah, we should, <laughs> it should be process over results. That's my left arm tattoo. Um, you don't you, you all don't know this, but Ben has like 23 inch biceps where he can fit that whole thing wrapping around it. I don't have 23 inch biceps anymore. Cody, I just, um, <laughs> I think that, I think that is the, the whole thing, man. I think trying to figure out, especially earlier in a game, like if you're doing halftime analysis, the way I've approached games for over a decade probably is not the score at halftime, but who's getting the better looks, who, who is creating advantages on offense and who is, uh, minimizing advantages on defense and, Go, let's let's stick with this game with the Warriors and the Mavs. I think we've seen reliably that if Dorian Finney-Smith or Maxi Kleba, Reggie Bullock had it going that game, but let's just stick with DFS and, and Maxi because they've done it in the last couple series. If you get them wide open, rhythm shots repeatedly, they'll make eight threes in a game at a very high percentage. Walk in, corner three, cash, Luka double team, kick to the top, plenty of space, cash, over and over and over again. That's a little different than a slightly hectic play with an extra pass where someone like Draymond Green or Otto Porter is very close on the closeout and you make the three. Or sometimes those guys are forced into a late clock step back three, right? And so what I'm looking at in the game is, is it a half of Luka carving you up, Jalen Brunson carving you up, making those extra passes, the defense is not equipped to handle the initial pressure and the rotation and help is not good. And now Finney Smith's threes are wide open every time. Or did Finney Smith and Brunson and even Luke uh, and Bullock, did they just make 10 threes, sorry, 14 threes and a half where it's like, there's no way they're ever going to do that again. 
that's the difference, I think, where I almost don't care what the halftime score is. It's like the process, especially early in the game. And I think coaches are the same way. They want to go into the locker room and be able to figure out how did they, how did they have success against us in the first half, even if they blew a few layups. Like as a coach, you don't want to keep doing the same thing if it leads to layups just because the opposing team, this three times out of a million, missed these layups that they would never normally miss. It's the same thing with open threes. So I like that you brought up these open threes because I think that lends itself to a really interesting conversation about variance because during the regular season, 179 players took at least 100 wide open threes. Okay, 179, at least 100 wide open threes. This is this is with the NBA.com six feet at least six feet of space from a defender classification. Yep, that's exactly it. At least six feet okay. of space. Only two players, Luke Kennard at 51% and Anthony Simons at 20.8%, shot over 50% on those wide open threes. I, I think you meant 50.8%. What did I say? You said 20.8%. 50.8%. Yeah, it was close. <laughs> Say, I can make the comeback in the third quarter. Uh, yeah. So only two players out of 179 shot over 50% on wide open threes. So I think some people, when it comes to variance, when it comes to quote-unquote luck, when it comes to some of these shots, I, I think people are like, well, wait a second. This is, this is worse than a coin flip. Like a coin flip isn't even as good as only two of the players. So how can we have, Ben, how, sh- how can we have like a good conversation about single game three-point variance or single game any kind of scoring variance without it just being like, it's all luck and random anyway? Well, it's not, it's not luck and random in that you're, you still need to generate good looks, right? Um, I think I've said, I, I wrote an entire chapter about this in Thinking Basketball, Seven games is usually not enough to determine with certainty or even some very high degree of certainty that the best team won. When the teams get close together, seven games is surely not enough. When the teams are, there's a larger gap between the teams, it's something we feel, I think, as fans, seven games is like, okay, this team just is out of ways to get good shots. So what that means is the games they're going to win against a superior team are the games that they're going to run hot. They're going to shoot over their head. That's not sustainable. They can only do that one every 10 games, two out of every 10 games. And so you get an upset or two in a series. When the teams are more competitive, Cody, um, you cannot remove this element of luck. It's been in basketball forever. It's variability. Now, as the athlete shooting the shot, it doesn't feel like luck, right? You're like, I, just get, I, I expect to make every shot I take, and I have to be the one to step up and make these shots. And some guys do that to a certain degree. I think Dallas heading into this last game was like 41% on, on wide open threes and 37% on open threes in the playoffs. Both of those are well above league average. Both of those are well above the way they shot all year. Um, and I'm open to the fact that like those guys are just in a position on the court where they're going to shoot better than they have in the past if they put them put themselves into in position positions to succeed and mentally they're just all athletes that are like super focused and able to make those shots but close games um close teams you still have to be able to create advantages in other places like off the dribble defensive schemes passing rotations all these things but yes, at the end of the day, shooting just is going to have some built-in variability. I think the part that the notion that I kind of want to address 
is it seems like when people talk about single game variability, single game quote unquote luck or whatever else, is that people seem to talk about it. Whereas you can go back into the game and if you replay it, you just kind of like toggle these different shots. Like, okay, well, this shot didn't go in, but if we rerun it again, this shot will go in and the rest of the game will be the same. Or we go Mm. in and turn this game, this shot off and this shot on and so on and so forth. And it just kind of like you get all of these different uh, machinations of what the game would look like. But I think the thing is, is you can't look at it as like each discrete shot you would just change. I think you have to view and, you know, to get into the weeds of philosophy here, I think you have to view each moment of a basketball game as like spiking off as a possible world, like a multiversal view. of it. Like if this team makes this shot, the rest of the game is then changed. Like the rest of the shots that they got wouldn't look exactly the same way, right? Because if one team starts off shooting... 0 for 3 instead of 3 for 3, maybe the other team doesn't call a timeout right away. Maybe they don't adjust in some different way, and the tenor of the game changes. And so I think that's the part of variability that's interesting, is you have to view it as like, this would be a completely different basketball game if that shot goes in as opposed to not going in, especially early on in the game. Oh, we're back at Doctor Strange, I think. (laughs) Yeah, we've got multiverses and multi-worlds, and I think, um, in general, you have the right idea here which is you you can't just swap these things out. I'm, I'm not even getting like super physics-y, metaphysics, deterministic. No, I'm not even talking about that. I'm just saying to your point, sometimes if things happen upstream, like take transition, you miss a shot that you might normally make, that literally creates a shot opportunity coming the other way that that team wouldn't have. And so... These events, they, we sometimes view them as discrete events that are independent from each other, but a lot of them are connected in these causal chains, and it doesn't even have to be the psychology of being down 10 instead of down 5. So, well, if they had called that technical foul, then he would have been in a bad mood. I don't, I'm not even talking about any of that. Just what happens when, um, like I think the Mavs the other day, for even a super simple example, they missed three wide open threes in a sequence of offensive rebounds. And it's like the maximum amount of shots you could hit there is one. That is the maximum amount. And then what happens to the Warriors possession when they miss that third three and everyone keeps everyone keeps trying to break out in transition but then keeps running back at the last second because the Mavs get the offensive rebound. Um, when we talk about variance, Cody, when we talk about luck, things like rebounding, loose balls, all those things are part of it, right? Like you shoot a shot and it misses, but sometimes it misses in a really weird way that falls right to a guy under the basket for a layup. Other times it kicks off the heel, doesn't hit the front of the rim, goes long, bounces out to 18 or 20 feet, and now we're back in our Kyle Lowry discussion where all of a sudden that weakness getting back on defense in transition is going to be challenged or attacked by the Draymond Green, Jordan Poole, Steph Curry, who's grabbing that off the rim and just pushing it down your throat. And I think a lot of this also has to do with the kind of diets and process you're getting with these shots. And this this blew me away when I saw this stat, right? Because when we think about the shots on the court, like three-pointers are going to have the most variability to them, right? A, a, especially compared to like rim attempts and free throw attempts and things like that. They, they only go in on average 35, 37, whatever it is, depending on your spot on the floor, percent of the time. So So it's going to create... Uh, higher variability naturally. That's exactly it. So in the most recent Warriors-Mavericks game, we talked about rim attempts in in terms of the Boston Celtics. According to PBP stats, Dallas had zero rim attempts last game. 
Wait a second, what? They had zero rim attempts last game. The Mavs had, in game two against the Warriors, the Mavs had zero rim attempts? Then they had zero rim attempts. Now, now I think you can we go back. Time out. I think there's a couple of things you can always go back and be like, maybe not that. Like, I recall there's a shot that Dwight Powell shoots where he ends up near the rim, but I think it, it keeps track of where players take off. And I think he probably took off from like five, six feet away. There was a defender there, so he kind of like shook around and missed the shot. But yeah, by the way, they tracked it. They had zero. Zero. That, okay, so I, I we have to point out we have to take a little aside and remind people that the data that is put into the play-by-play by a human being encoding it has variability itself. It's, it's not really related to the variability conversation we're having about the blowouts, but that data um, has little errors here and there, and it has forever. You know, um, the, the, back in the day, you'd watch a game and you'd track Michael Jordan's minutes and he plays 40 minutes and you check the box score. And it's like, he played 43 minutes and you're like, no, he did not. He just did <laughs> not. Um, and similarly, I can immediately recall off the top of my head, Draymond Green coming back in the game with five fouls. Luka Doncic attacks him with five fouls, takes him down under the bucket and hits that little two-handed over-the-head spin shot layup right under the hoop. If that's not a rim attempt, I don't know what is. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm saying. But, like, I, I've referenced the stat before, so it would be weird now to be like, well, actually, let's question this whole stat. But No, but zero, but, like, even if there's two, like, ze- that's crazy. It's shocking. I did not realize low. that. And so to tie yeah. it back to our conversation, like, rim attempts in general are a lot more stable. Like, you're going to be yep. making those in a much higher uh, shot. So, like, even if you spread off into all of these possible worlds, the possible world where you miss, like, six straight rim attempts is a lot less likely than the possible world where you're going to miss six straight wide-open three-point attempts. Yeah, and then maybe some of the downstream things on that don't compound as much. Free throws, uh, shots at the rim, even the space, now that I think we talk through it. The geometry of the game 20, certainly 30 and 40 years ago, with so many guys in the paint and so many guys literally trying to put their bodies in the highest value real estate areas under the hoop without the ball, just like before the ball's there, that's where they want to go. And so then your stars of the era, your your get out of the way and get me a bucket kind of situation is low post, mid post, elbow, you know, think of second three Pete Michael Jordan. Heck, heck, first three Pete Michael Jordan is catch the ball on the move, one huge drive, uh, one huge dribble, raise up from 12 feet and double clutch and then wave to the crowd and bank it off the glass. All of that stuff um, is happening closer to the basket. It's happening with bodies in the lane. And so I think you're less likely to get these huge, swingy, lucky plays that we talked about that aren't just related to the ball going in, but everything else. So in space, especially with the Warriors, you've got guys that are like 35 feet away from the hoop. And so you can get these long three-point rebounds that kick out in funky directions, start fast breaks, go back to the other team, lead, lead to layups. And therefore, you're probably likely to have or more likely to have a run or a quarter where a team like Miami or Dallas puts up 40, the other team puts up 18, and then within the same game and the same process, you can have a quarter that almost goes the other way when they miss those shots. And this also ties back to Miami specifically, where it's interesting because we talk about it in terms of like the three-point shot variability, but it almost feels like the Heat have like this variability of defense, where it's like some of these quarters, they're able to get a bunch of these steals, get out in the fast break, score these pick sixes, and that just changes the complete nature of the rest of that quarter. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think we've, I think we've done this topic justice. I think so too. Um, 
Any, anything else you want to add from the weekend games before we get out of here? Did you did you see the mic'd up clip of Luka Doncic last game? I, I was that in the first quarter. It was in I the first quarter. It was in the first quarter. Yeah. yeah, he's talking to he's talking to Boban. Yeah, Boban, Boban. <laughs> Maxi Kleba comes up, starts meowing at him. Like, see, it's like at the four thirty mark or something like that. in The first quarter, it's all time mic'd up moment. That's all I want is just to see those three interact. Was it, what was it? Was it the was it the meowing from Maxi Kleba that really caught your attention, or was it the uh? A boba. What what was Luca doing? Was that an Arnold impression? Was he like get to the chopper? <laughs> I I honestly don't. I don't even know what Boban was doing. They were like warming up or something like that. I don't know what Kleba was doing. I don't understand any of what was happening. It's also right before Jordan Poole is like strumming an air guitar for a little bit on the sidelines. There's just a lot of of bizarre stuff going on. Just with a, the mic'd up. Yeah, with the mic'd up. Of uh, quite because the, uh, they know it's because they know they're mic'd up. That's fair. I don't know why yeah. you would meow on on mic'd up though. Like of the of the choices to do to like this is how I'm going to show everyone that I'm cool. Like meowing at someone doesn't doesn't seem to be the move, but it kind of worked. Well, for uh, maybe it's cool for Maxi. I don't know. Um, if you want to support this show, check out Patreon.com/slash/ThinkingBasketball. We have uh, latest Patreon extra video. Did you see this video yesterday, Cody? On the one play that I think epitomizes why the Warriors are so difficult to guard four traditional defenses. That was fun because it's one play. It takes nine seconds, and I think the video is three and a half minutes. Um, it, it's from game two. It's from that game two comeback. Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. We also have our playoff leaderboard um, updating daily. We've got live Q&As, a community, and more. As always, thanks for listening all the way to the end of this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it and that you're enjoying the playoffs. And of course, wherever you are, you are having a great day.